Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Father God, as we come to hear your word, we ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, that you'd give us ears to hear, to encounter you anew. Um, Lord, as we meditate on your name, what is your name, God? And what does it mean? Who are you and what are you like? I pray that you would impress upon our hearts anew your character and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome once again. As I said, my name is uh, Chris Myers. I'm the associate pastor here at All Saints East Dallas. Uh, Jay Wright is our senior pastor, and he is taking a well-deserved trip with his family. Um, so on a, any normal Sunday, um, he and I would be serving together, and I wouldn't be running all the plays by myself. But it makes uh, for an interesting evening and keeps us on our toes, and especially since the guts of the bulletin are from All Saints Dallas, which is uh, the church that planted us here in East Dallas. So we have all kinds of fun Labor Day curveballs. Uh, so bear with us. Um, this past Wednesday night, we had an amazing night of worship with Audrey Saad. And uh, I think some of you are here and maybe are coming to check us out as, as a result of that. 
night of worship. So if, if you're here because of that, welcome, special, special welcome to y'all. And it was an amazing night. Um, it was amazing to see this entire place filled. There were about 500 bodies in here. And this room is, is built for singing. This room is built for voices. And as she was leading in worship and uh, the voices of the congregation joined with her, it was, it was a powerful moment. And I just found myself praying and asking uh, that God would fill this place um, so that voices would be lifted up to him week in and week out. So I ask that you join me in that prayer uh, because I, I can't make that happen. Jay can't make that happen. Our leadership team can't make that happen. God has to make that happen. He has to draw people to himself, draw people to this place. So I ask you to join me in praying for that. And Audrey Saad, in, in, in between her songs, had some profound things to say, and, and I just was so affected by the simplicity um, and the humility with which she spoke about her faith and really even her doubt. And I was so struck by these songs of praise that came out of a place, um, not just of faith, but an honest reckoning with her own doubt. And she said something interesting at a certain point. She said, she was talking about her prayer life, and she said, sometimes my prayer life is this. I take what God says in, his, in the Word, in the Scriptures, and I hold it in one hand, and I take my experience and I hold it in the other hand, and I find myself wrestling in the gap between them, and that's my prayer life. Because why isn't my life like it looks like in the Scriptures? There's these things that God has promised to do for us, these things that He said He is and that He's going to do on our behalf, but I'm not experiencing them, and what, what's the gap between them? It's such an honest question, and I think if, any, if you've been in the life of faith for any length of time, you've probably wrestled with that question. Um, the fact that she turns that into prayer is uh, humbling indeed, because sometimes we don't turn that into prayer. We just simply decide to not pray. But this passage from Exodus that we just heard, the people of Israel are finding themselves in a very similar moment. Because they're the people of promise, the people of covenant, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these people who have been promised a land. And yet, where do they find themselves? But in slavery. Enslaved to a, a, the wrong, they're in the wrong place, and there's no milk, and there's no honey. It's just uh, oppression. They're downtrodden. And we hear in, the, in Exodus chapter 2 uh, that they cry out to God. They groan it says, in their oppression. And listen to these verses from the end of Exodus chapter 2. Because God ultimately responds. He ultimately responds to the groaning of his people, to the oppression of his people. And this is what Exodus 2 says. During those many days the kingdom of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. So God's people cry out, and over a period of time, finally God decides to do something. And what is it that God decides to do? Well, that brings us to the passage we have tonight. He calls Moses. God's first move in his plan to deliver his people from slavery is to call someone, to raise up a leader. 
This passage is mostly about God. It teaches us things about God and his character. And one of the first things that we learn about God from this passage is that the way he responds to the cry of his people and their desire for deliverance is he calls a person. Now, that might seem unexpected to you. Why doesn't God just do something? But that is God doing something. This is how God does something. Throughout the scriptures, he calls calls to people, he raises them up, and he initiates his redemption in the world through people. That's what he did with Abraham. He called him out of one land, brought him to another land, and said, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. I'm going to multiply you, I'm going to bless you, and through the blessing that you experience, all nations will be blessed. And I can personally find it frustrating, and maybe you can personally find it frustrating sometimes, how much God tends to rely on people to do his work, that he raises up leaders, flawed people. Uh, Moses is certainly not perfect as you journey with him throughout Exodus, and um, he doesn't even get to enter the promised land, which is a whole other story. But God is determined to raise up people and to work through them. When he hears the groans of his people throughout the Old Testament, even throughout the New Testament, what does he do? He raises up leaders. He raises up judges in the time of judges to deliver his people over and over and over again. He raises up prophets. He raises up kings. He raises up people. And that's what God does. When he hears, after he hears, he calls. And he calls and he raises up men like Moses. So, that's the first thing that we see about God in this passage. And the second thing that we see about God in this passage is that God doesn't just call people. He binds himself to people. God binds himself to people. What do I mean by that? Covenant is a a bound relationship. God made a covenant with Abraham. He renewed that covenant with Isaac. He renewed that covenant with Jacob and said to all your descendants, this is the covenant. This is the promise. This is what I am going to do. That means God is binding himself to his people. He's identifying with them and saying, I'm going to fulfill these promises. I'm going to work on your behalf. And what God says to Moses, after Moses sees this amazing sight, this burning bush that's not consumed, and after God tells him, this is holy ground, and take off your shoes, and and Moses approaches, and then he can't even look. He has to turn his face because he's so overwhelmed by the presence of God. The first thing that God says to Moses after he calls to him is what? I am the God of your father. But not just the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I think that repetition is so interesting. He doesn't just say, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I'm the God of your father, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob. I am those particular people's gods. God. God is the God of particular people. He is the God of the patriarchs to whom he made promises, with whom he made a covenant, and he is the God of Moses' father, meaning the God of the people of Israel, the descendants of Israel. And God's love and his salvation is always focused on real people in real places, at real times, in real circumstances, in real need. It's not abstract. God's love, his presence, his person is not just like the force in the world. God's not out in heaven simply sending good vibes towards us. Hope it works out. 
he is making relationship. He is binding himself to particular people through covenant. And we see God working like this throughout the story of the Old Testament and the story of the New Testament. God identifies himself with his people. This is what he goes on to say to Moses. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Again, God sees, he notices. Their pain is not unobserved. He is observing, he's moving, he's coming to their rescue. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God says, I have surely seen, I have heard their cry, I know their sufferings, I have come down to deliver, and now you go get them, Moses. That's my plan. I'm, I'm working, I'm going to deliver my people, and my plan is you, Moses, will go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Um, come on, guys. Um, so God is speaking. God is calling. God is seeing. God is hearing. He is determined to deliver his people, and the way that he does that, again, is he raises up Moses, and he says, I'm going to fulfill the promises of my covenant. I'm going to to be a man of my word, a God of my word. And the way that I'm going to do that is going to work through you, Moses. So the first thing that Moses says in the passage is, after he hears God's voice, is here I am. And as soon as God tells him the plan, Moses says, who am I? So he goes from here I am to who am I in just a few short verses. Because if you're Moses, this is an overwhelming task. I'm going to go walk into Pharaoh and I'm going to tell him to let his free labor force walk out? I, I doubt it. I doubt that's going to work. And Moses would be in a u- unique position to know. He was raised in the court of Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh, at the time when Moses was born, had sent out an edict that all the male children of the people of Israel should be put to death because Israel was, was threatened by how large their people were becoming. And Moses' mother said, I'm not going to kill my baby. And she put him in a basket goes down the river. Pharaoh's daughter rescues him. Moses finds himself raised in the house of Pharaoh. But he didn't ever forgot his people. And when he saw one of the Hebrews being oppressed by an Egyptian, he lashes out in anger and actually murders this Egyptian and is therefore sent into exile, runs away, ends up in this wilderness of Midian, maybe trying to forget that any of that happened. And then he's jaunting up a mountain one day looking for sheep. And here comes God calling. So when Moses says, who am I? It's coming from his own story, his own personal experience of like, well, I've been to Egypt. I've been in Pharaoh's court. And I don't think this is going to work. Now, the rest of this chapter and into chapter 4, God shows him how it's going to work and he fills him. But in the verses we have before us, just sit with Moses' question. Who am I that you would send me? And then the question becomes, who are you? Who am I? And who are you again, God? (laughs) God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Okay, but what is that? Who are you? What are you like? And how can I know that I can trust you? And then we get into these very, very famous verses um, in this chapter here. 
verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? He's saying, in effect, who, who, who are you? Why? How is this going to work? Why is it that Moses is asking for, for a name? It's an interesting question, and I don't know that we can answer it totally. Is it that this name that God gives was a well-known name of the patriarchs and it had somehow fallen into disfavor? Or Moses had simply forgotten it? Or is this some new revelation that, that God is giving in identifying himself as the I am? In this passage, as in many passages, sometimes the text doesn't answer the questions that we are asking it because it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us if this is the first time they've used, this name is in use. Um, it doesn't tell us if Moses had somehow forgotten the name of his God and just needed to be reminded. Or if Moses is after something different. And on one level, I can understand Moses' question. Because if God is commissioning me to do this grand thing, I'm, I'm going to need some assurances. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob may not cut it. That's distant. That's something that happened in the past. And I saw how that kind of worked out, right? Now we're in Egypt. I thought we were going to get a land and all that sort of thing. So God answers with crystal clarity. No, he answers with ambiguity. <laughs> because what does God say? God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. I am who I am. Or I will be what I will be. You can translate it either way. There's any number of ways to translate what this is because it's so ambiguous. And then he goes on to say, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. Now, that phrase, I am, we take, um, transliterate from the Hebrew, and we usually say that as Yahweh. You may have heard that name before. When we say Yahweh, we're saying, I am. Um, in, the old, in the Old Testament translations, or English translations of the Old Testament, if you see the word Lord, that's all capital letters, so like a big capital letter, but then also small capital letters for O-R-D, the text is telling you that that's what's in the background of that is Yahweh. Um, that's God's name. I am. The Jewish people at a certain point in time decided because of the Ten Commandments of the risk of taking the Lord's name in vain that they wouldn't say that name. So they would say something else. They would say Adonai. Or they would even just say Hashem, the name. They would get away from saying God's name in itself. And there's something to that because God is giving himself something of himself and we want to be careful with it. Uh, our, our culture, our time and history, we tend to be flippant with names. But in an ancient Near Eastern context, to entrust someone with your name is to entrust them with something of your character, who you are, your identity, your essence. That's why God is always changing people's names. It's not just this new nickname that he's giving someone. He's saying something about their identity. When he changes Abram's name to Abraham and says, you are the father of multitudes, he's saying something about his identity and his destiny. When he changes God's name, or Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel, from the trickster, the heel grabber, to the one who strives with God and man and yet prevails, he's saying something about his identity, his character. And so when Moses asks the name of God, God is entrusting something of himself to his people. 
So he's further binding himself to his people by revealing something of who he is. So this, this phrase that maybe you've heard before, if you've been around church, you've probably heard it, this, this name Yahweh, this name I am, what does it mean? What does it mean? What is God trying to communicate about himself in this? On one level, and, and many people do this, we can take it as sort of in philosophical terms, that God is saying something about his being, that he is absolute being, that he is the self-existent one, that he lives outside of time and space, that he is not conditioned by the things that we are conditioned in time, by time and space. And I, that's certainly true. That is certainly theologically orthodox to say, and as we take the whole counsel of Scripture seriously, and we take the testimony of the church and people of God seriously, those things are absolutely true about God. But is that what he's saying to Moses in this moment? I am the self-existent one. I am absolute being, Moses. Is that what he's saying? I'm not so sure. And I can't say definitively. But I'm intrigued by this other translation. I will be what I will be. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. Because that language of I will be echoes in the passage. Because that's exactly what he tells Moses. I will be with you. I am the one with you. I am the one who will be with you. That's a phrase that God uses to the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. He promises Abraham. He promises Isaac. He promises Jacob. I will be with you. As part of his covenant promises, as part of him binding himself to his people, is a promise of his presence. I will be with you. And I think that that phrase, this idea of I will be who I will be, it speaks to the unfolding nature of God's revelation. That God may not be conditioned by time and space, but we are. That God may be self-existent, but we're not. That God is all-knowing, but we're not. So we have to be shown who God is. And as, as finite humans who live in the conditions of time and space, who God is has to be unfolded to us within time and space itself. And that's what we mean, that's what Christians mean when we talk about revelation. God showing himself to us. And what is revelation? One commentator that I was reading put it this way, revelation involves person, words, and deeds. Revelation involves person, words, and deeds. Specifically, talk of God's revelation requires the language of promise. So God says that he'll do something and then he does it over the course of time. Maybe not in the timeline that we would expect or would desire, but then he does it. So revelation involves person, words, deeds, promise. I will be who I will be. God's actions reveal who he is. God is revealed to us through what he does, through what he says. So I'm, I'm a father. I have two daughters. I have a blonde one and a brunette one. I have a yin and a yang. They're my daughters, Eleanor and Rowan. I'm their father. The meaning of the word father for them, for good or for ill, is bound up in my person, my words, my deeds, and my promises. What I do, the way that I behave towards them, the, way, the good things that I do, the bad things I do, that word father, the identity of father, is unfolded for them, revealed to them through my words, my deeds, my promises. 
And it's the same for us as God's children. What God does show us, shows us who he is. So there's this interesting exchange, part of the exchange that I want to draw our attention to. Because one of the things that God says to Moses is, I'm going to give you a sign. I bet both Moses was like, great, I will take that. Whatever you can give me, burning bush is great, but that can't come with me, so what else do you have for me? What's going to be the sign? This is what God says. This is what the I am says. This is what I will be, what I will be says to Moses. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's not much of a sign. That means you have to do all of the stuff before you get the sign. Because the sign is that the deliverance has happened, that all the stuff that we know happens in the Exodus, the plagues have happened, that Pharaoh's will is finally broken, that the Passover has happened, that the angel of death has passed over the people of Israel, that they've been delivered through the Red Sea and that they've come to the mountain of Sinai, the very mountain where God God encounters Moses in the burning bush. So the sign to him is in the future. I will be what I will be. I'm saying I'm this thing now, and I'm going to show you in the future, in every moment from now until then, who I am. And if you're going to pay attention, you will learn who I am and what I am like. So the sign is in the future. And for us, it is too in a lot of ways. (laughs) And a lot of the things that we hope for, Christians are people of hope. So much of what we believe in is in front of us. Yes, we have the Spirit of God now, and He's empowering us. He's bearing His fruit in us. He's uh, allowing us to love one another in community. Um, We're experiencing the benefits of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection now, but so much of it waits for us in hope. I will be who I will be. Who God is showing us now He is. He's pulling us into the future. And there's another intriguing thing that God says that I think reveals something of his character. Remember those sequence of phrases that God said about his people. I have surely seen, I have heard their cry, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver. The I am is one who comes down. That isn't the philosophical absolute being (laughs) who's detached from time and space. This is a God who binds himself to people in covenant. The I am is not pleased to stay in heaven. He comes down. We need a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need to know that he can be trusted, that he doesn't change. But we also need a God who comes down. We need both to be true. And this is exactly who Jesus is. He's the God who comes down. Jesus is God's ultimate answer to the question, what is your name again? Jesus, salvation, Christ, the anointed one. I'm the God who comes down. In Christ, God does what he's done throughout all of biblical history. He raises up a leader to deliver his people. But that leader is himself. Because he binds himself not just to humanity, but binds himself to our very flesh. In Christ, God binds himself to us. In Christ, God suffers with us and for us to deliver us to the mountain where we praise him. 
Not Mount Sinai, as the writer of Hebrews says, but Mount Zion, where we, with feastal trumpets and praise, worship this Lord, this I am. It is in Christ that God ultimately says to us, I have surely seen, I have heard their cry, I know their sufferings, I have come down to deliver. Moses' question, who are you, God, is one of those perennial questions. Another one of those perennial questions is, why do we suffer? Why the pain? Think back to what Audrey Assad was saying about her experience not measuring up to the promise that there's a gap in between. Moses has given an answer to his question, but it's probably not the answer that he was expecting. We're given an answer to the question of why we suffer, but it's probably not the answer that we were expecting. This is what Philip Yancey says in his book, The Bible Jesus Read. We may not get the answer to the problem of pain that we want from Jesus. We get instead the mysterious confirmation that God suffers with us. We are not alone. Jesus bodily reconstructs trust in God. Because of Jesus, I can trust that God truly understands my condition. I can trust that I matter to God and that God cares, regardless of how things look at the time. When I begin to doubt, I turn again to the face of Jesus. And there I see the compassionate love of a God well acquainted with grief. Jesus is the God who comes down to bear the burden of his people, to be the actual Passover lamb for his people, not just to deliver his people in an abstract way, but to be the very deliverance that they need and that we need. So God says to us in Christ again, I have surely seen, I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you knowing that we are finite creatures and knowing <clears throat> that you have to show us who you are. You have to reveal yourself to us. <clears throat> and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you show us the face of Christ. And I pray that even now, in this moment of quiet, in this moment of prayer, that you would show us something of yourself. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have bound yourself to our flesh, that you suffered in the body, that you took up your cross. On the third day, you were raised again and that you ascended into heaven and that you, in a human body, sit next to the right hand of the Father. And we know that you know what it is to suffer. We pray that that would minister to us in our own suffering, in our own pain, in our own lives, the pain that we see in our world, the pain that we see in Houston and in the Gulf Coast. Lord, we pray that we would be reminded that you have identified ourselves, yourself with us. And you bound yourself to us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.